I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast featuring live constitutional conversations held here at the NCC in Philadelphia and across America. Through a smash Broadway hit, Alexander Hamilton has re-entered the American imagination. In this episode, Judge Ketanji Jackson, Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, University of Kentucky College of Law Professor Joshua Douglas, and attorney Vanessa Nadal, discuss what Hamilton, both the man and the musical, have to teach us about the Constitution and the law. The panel explores the ways that Hamilton's resurgence has encouraged people of all ages to engage with America's early history, the stories of the framers, and the legendary life of Hamilton. Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderated this panel, which was produced in partnership with the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law and presented live at the NCC. This amazing group is part of a great project that convened this morning to reenact the trial of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And it was an incredible experience. And Judge Jackson presided, and you had witnesses and counsel on both sides, and the audience voted at the end about whether or not they thought Burr was guilty of intentionally uh, killing Hamilton. Um, so Judge Jackson, why don't we just start by your describing the trial, what were the arguments on both sides and how did the audience vote? Well, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, For those of you who know the story, uh, this is 200 years in the making, the uh, determination of whether or not Aaron Burr intentionally murdered uh, Alexander Hamilton. We had a wonderful array of witnesses uh, who included the seconds for both uh, Hamilton and Burr during the duel. Um, We had expert witnesses, uh, one on each side, who were uh, experts in uh, uh, firearms to explain whether or not uh, the the operation of the firearms that were used at the time and uh, whether or not Alexander Hamilton's firearm may have had a hair trigger on it Uh, which would have indicated to Burr that he was actually in danger. Um, We had uh, Eliza Hamilton, who described uh, what her husband had said to her and the fact that he was wearing his glasses when he uh, left early in the morning to go to Weehawken. Um, And I I think I'm missing someone. The the second and also the the pistol manufacturer. The the, pistol manufacturer as well. Um, And it was a delightful morning of testimony. Um, The very, very close vote. We had the entire audience vote. There were about approximately 50 people. And they were essentially split down in the middle um, as to whether or not uh, Alexander Hamilton was murdered uh, by Aaron Burr. And, and the central question was whether he actually threw away his shot intentionally in, what was the French word again? Uh, a delope. A delope. When delope. You, yes. it, was, it was whether or not, everybody agreed that Alexander Hamilton, uh, uh, after the pace off, turned around and drew his gun through the body of uh, uh, Aaron Burr, meaning he brought it directly up, but eventually it reached the sky. And uh, the question was that, that that terminology that pertains to throwing away your shot is a delope. And the question was whether in so gesturing, 
did Aaron Burr have a reasonable fear that he was actually going to be shot in that second of the gun being raised uh, toward him? And it was very, very interesting in terms of the way in which the lawyers argued, um, and, and apparently very close in terms of how the jurors, jurors decided. Phenomenal. Well, one of the great things about the trial was that it actually quoted from the musical, and all of the evidence were lyrics from the musical, and it just showed how powerfully the musical has galvanized people around this country and across the world to be inspired to learn about history. Vanessa, you've done such important work with New York City High school kids, 20,000 kids have gotten to see the musical and, and learn about history. Tell us about those experiences and how you see kids being inspired by history, uh, by the musical. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really incredible how many kids are so uh, excited by the musical and the content of the musical. Um, there's a program uh, called Edgeham, um, which is the first of its kind, extremely innovative way to um, to bring musical theater to high school students in our country. Um, and it happens, I believe, everywhere that the musical goes. Um, um, it's started with this very generous gift from the Gilder Lerman Institute, and they've been doing the bulk of the work. Um, they created a whole program that um, where the kids study, you know, the history, and then they get to come see the show, and they I, they do like their own art inspired by the the work that they've been doing and the history that they've been studying, and then there are representatives from the school that actually get to come up on stage and perform, um, you know, on for example the Richard Rogers Theater, um, and the cast is usually there, or at least some of the cast is there to watch them and to, you know, get them on stage and off stage. And, um, and the cast just talks about how incredibly inspiring it is to see these kids getting out of their shell and doing the work. And whether it's, you know, I think everybody's stepping outside of the box a little bit. If you love musical theater, you're getting into history. If you love history, you're maybe getting into being on stage and sort of this interdisciplinary um, approach um, is really unique. And the fact that the production is allowing these kids to come and it's, you know, instead of doing a, prof a show for profit on Wednesday matinees, whenever they're having these kids there, they're just having the kids there. I mean, it's purely educational. It's really incredible um, that the production um, is doing this uh, and and trying to bring it around the country. Um, and I think the show just, in, in setting it in today's sort of parlance, um, it helps and, and it helps, like all theater does, it helps you see yourself in that person's shoes and understand that the framers um, were people too and they, you know, good or bad, they, they all have their pluses and minuses and strengths and weaknesses and, yeah. That, that perfectly expresses the central contribution of the show. It allows kids of all different backgrounds to see the framers in their own shoes and to identify them. 
Have, have you talked to any of those kids or can you describe how seeing the musical has changed their lives and really engaged them in history in a way they weren't before? Um, we get letters all the time from kids who are excited about it. We get, you know, people send us videos of kids who are doing stuff. Um, we get tweets about whose birthday it is or was, you know, today's John Lawrence's birthday. And, you know, I'm sure those kids, I mean, I certainly did not do that in high school. Um, <laughs> I had no idea that people, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to think like, when's this guy's birthday this year? So there, there are definitely hundreds, uh, I mean, thousands of anecdotes about how much and in how many different ways they're being engaged. Um, I think some of the kids that have gone through the Edgeham program are writing their college essays about the experience and using it to, I mean, it's, it's really affecting a lot of kids in a lot of meaningful ways, I think. It's a transformative experience that's done more for constitutional education than any other uh, musical or theater piece of its time. People are flocking to the National Constitution Center to see our Hamilton exhibit. And thank you for all you're doing to spread this constitutional light and inspire kids to learn about history through this wonderful uh, production. Erwin, um, some have described all of American constitutional history as a battle between the ideas of Hamilton and Jefferson. Hamilton favoring national power, strong bank, the ability of Congress to regulate the economy. Jefferson favoring states' rights, uh, constrained federal power, and uh, localism rather than nationalism. How would you describe Hamilton's constitutional vision and how it's defined the terms of debate throughout American history? To a stunning extent, Hamilton's vision triumphed. This wasn't preordained. Everything at the Constitutional Convention was deeply contested. As your great exhibit shows, Hamilton and Madison, who we think is the preeminent founding fathers, very much disagreed. It was very much disputed at the state ratifying conventions, even as to whether the Constitution would be approved. And yet we look at what Hamilton said and we see that's where history has gone. As one example, Hamilton in Federalist Number 78 argued that the court should have the power to declare unconstitutional statutes or executive actions. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the court this power. But the Supreme Court in 1803 in Marbury versus Madison created John Marshall's opinion as Chief Justice very much tracks the arguments made by Alexander Hamilton. Or take the example you mentioned, the relationship between the national government and the states. One of my favorite parts of the play Hamilton is the cabinet debate between Hamilton and Jefferson in front of Washington as to whether there should be a Bank of the United States. The lyrics from the debate just so capture the constitutional arguments on each side. Alexander Hamilton believed that Congress needed to have broad powers to deal with economic and social issues. Congress shouldn't be limited to just those things enumerated in Article I, Section 8. Congress should be able to do anything that's reasonably designed to carry out its powers that's not prohibited by the Constitution. He triumphed in the Washington administration and within Congress of getting this approved. And then in 1819 in McCulloch versus Maryland, Chief Justice John Marshall very much accepted Hamilton's arguments in terms of the powers of Congress and the supremacy of the federal government of the states. This is the blueprint for government that's been followed from the very beginning of American history. And it really is, I say, 
confirming Alexander Hamilton's vision. Thank you for so well summarizing those central contributions of Hamilton. You mentioned Federalist 78. Marbury versus Madison has been in the news recently. The acting attorney general has questioned its legitimacy, but you note that Hamilton himself in Federalist 78 said that whenever there was a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and that of our temporary agents represented by the legislators, court should prefer the master to the servant, the principal to the agent. So that judicial review goes back to Hamilton himself. Josh, you are an election law scholar and specialist, and the contested election of 1800, as we know from the musical, was among the most contested in American history. Uh, uh, tell us about, you know, remind us about Hamilton's central role in that election, and then what are the after effects of that election, which resulted in uh, amendments to the Constitution? How are they still being felt today? Sure. So one of the most interesting things to me, I think, about that dispute of 1800 is that it's very similar to many of the disputes that we're having even today in, in elections, and we still have recounts going on right now from the election of over a week ago. Um, Hamilton and Burr were running mates in the election of 1800, and it was assumed that, and everyone sort of agreed on the Democratic-Republican side, that Jefferson, I said Hamilton, I meant uh, Jefferson and Burr, everyone agreed that Jefferson uh, was essentially going to be the president and Burr would be the vice president. Um, the problem was the way the electoral college was set up at the time, each elector in the states got two votes. And so each one voted for Jefferson and Burr on the Republican side, which ended up having them tied. Uh, and then a tie in the Electoral College gets sent to the House representatives, and they vote by state delegations. So each state has one vote. Um, and at the time, neither the Republicans or the Federalists had a majority in the Electoral College. And so there was a deadlock. Um, and they went through 35 consecutive votes of trying to figure out which one would become the president, which one would become the vice president. Burr, even though he was the running mate and essentially said he would be Jefferson's vice president, didn't back down and, and went to uh, try to become the president as well. And it took Hamilton stepping in and actually convincing the delegate from Delaware, who is a Federalist, to abstain from the vote. Uh, and that paved the way for Jefferson to ultimately win the majority of states in the House of Representatives and become president. And Burr, coming in second place, was vice president. But that election of 1800 exposed a, a fundamental flaw from the original founders and framers of the Constitution with respect to uh, delegation between the president and the vice president when it came to the Electoral College. So they needed to change that. You know, you know in the musical, uh, Jefferson says, uh, you know what, we can change that because I'm the president. Well, of course, he couldn't change it as the president, uh, although I think in a hip-hop musical, the line, you know what, we can change that because we have the support of two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states doesn't ring as well and, and probably doesn't rhyme as well either. Um, <laughs> so I understand why the musical says it that way, but they really needed to go through a constitutional amendment. And here's one really interesting thing about this is that so the 12th Amendment was, was ratified to say that the electors could essentially vote separately so they can choose who you want as your president and who you want as your vice president. But the main reason that the Republicans pushed forward the 12th Amendment was to aggrandize their power. They didn't want to keep the door open for one of the Federalists to become vice president by coming in second place. And in many ways, it's the same kind of things we see today, where the party in power enacts election rules, whether it's voter ID laws or gerrymandering or any sorts of election rules that we have 
to try to entrench themselves in power. In many ways, that's what the Republicans were doing with the ratification of the 12th Amendment, ensuring that because they knew they had a majority, they could capture the entire executive by winning both the president and the vice president and not have the potential that the Federalists might come in second place. That's a fascinating uh, lens to view the 12th Amendment as a way of entrenching uh, the Republicans. And it reminds us also that Hamilton and the other founders didn't anticipate the rise of political parties. This was their great short-sightedness. And the 12th Amendment implicitly acknowledges the existence of parties by assuming that the uh, president and his uh, vice president will come from the same party. Uh, judge Jackson, you have the great distinction of being the first federal judge in America to cite the musical. And, <laughs> and you have a wonderful passage in an uh, opinion, which is uh, called uh, New England Anti-Vivisection Society versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. What do, I want to know more about this case. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to tell us about it. But let me just quote your citation because it's such an elegant uh, shout out. You say, uh, accordingly, and as a general matter, the threshold inquiry for any federal court is whether the plaintiff has alleged and ultimately proven such a personal stake in the outcome of the controversy as to warrant the invocation of federal court jurisdiction. And then you say CF, in other words, see all, you know, compare Lin-Manuel Miranda, the room where it happens on Hamilton, Atlantic Records 2015, you don't get a win unless you play in the game. <laughs> totally inspired. What was going on in that case? Why did you cite, <laughs> why did you cite uh, Hamilton? And more broadly, you know, how do you find uh, history relevant uh, in your judicial opinion? Well, I, um, I had a wonderful law clerk who loved Hamilton, and I'd actually just returned from seeing it. And he said, Judge, 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 I have a great place for this quote from the... And I said, it's great, it's perfect. So this case um, actually involved uh, chimps. We call it chimps in my, in, in my chambers. Um, it was a, a case in which um, these chimps <laughs> who had been in a laboratory for a long time were being retired and moved to a, a zoo in England. And uh, one of the New England Anti-Vivisection Society, which is an organization that is um, really about rescuing animals in the situation and wanted these chimps to go to a sanctuary rather than to the zoo, sued. And they were suing essentially on behalf of the chimps to keep them from being moved. Um, and in that passage, and ultimately in the case, I determined that they didn't have standing which is a legal principle that prevents people who really don't have a, a, a legal stake in a controversy from being able to file suit. Um, and so this was sort of a way of capturing this notion of, of standing. But I think in general, you know, the, the, the musical, obviously, as, we, as Vanessa talked about, was so inspiring to so many people. Um, not only the you know, students who, who see it, but also those of us who are you know, in the working world can find a lot of uh, themes that are applicable to our own work um, in this way. And I think I was, I was delighted to be able to have the opportunity um, you know, for a lot of reasons. I think one of, one of the things that um, was inspiring to me personally was the diversity in the show. Um, because you know, it, it, it was a very interesting aspect that you had these historical figures who 
uh, were you know, white people in American history being played uh, by such a diverse cast. And for those of us who have had the extraordinary good fortune of being um, able to do roles in government, being judges, being legislators, and who happen to be people of color, we're almost like the embodiment of Lin-Manuel Miranda's vision in this way. Because what we do as judges, as legislators, or whatever is no different than the traditional roles, and yet we are not traditionally cast in those positions. And so I was very inspired by that aspect of the show and really felt like I should put it in my opinions. <laughs> That's magnificent. Well, Vanessa, as you hear Judge Jackson talk about that uh, ability of the show to allow citizens of different uh, colors and backgrounds and perspectives to see themselves in the shoes of the founders, to identify with them, and in the process to identify with each other. Um, it's so important in these polarized times to bring together people of different perspectives who are so divided by so much. That's what the mission of the National Constitution Center is, to bring together liberals and conservatives. Tell us more about how the show achieved it and how else you'd recommend that we teach kids about history by helping them see themselves in the shoes of people who aren't like them? It's a very big question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not an educator, but I think Hamilton has shown us that in, and you know, Tommy and Lynn did a great job in showing us that when you're telling a story, even if it's a truthful uh, story about something that happened, um, you don't have to, there are, there are facts that are important to the story and there may be facts that aren't important to the story, like the way the person who's representing the character looks. Um, so I think colorblind casting you know, maybe it's not appropriate all the time. I don't know. It's, it's not my field. But I think this shows you that in schools, for example, which is I know Lynn is very passionate about, it doesn't matter who is playing what character. It should, you know, think about Shakespeare, who didn't have any female actors. I believe that's true. So there were always men playing women's roles. In some ways, being able to step into somebody else's shoes is probably helping us all understand what the other person is going through. I think that's a really, and, and, and just watching that, obviously, um, affects the audience as well. I mean, that's also been shown. It's not just the person who's, who's playing the character, but also the people who are watching it. Um, I forgot the beginning of your question. <laughs> no, but that's a huge point. I asked how can we, because we can't, no one else is going to bottle the Hamilton magic. How else can we inspire kids to learn about history, civics, and the Constitution? And you talk about colorblind casting as a central way to do that. So that was such a good suggestion. I'm going to ask you for another one. How, you know, uh, helping kids identify with these unfamiliar dead white guys and relate the concepts that they were talking about to their own lives. What are, what are other ways to, to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think finding ways to get p 
people engaged is it's not just reading a book. Some people don't enter. You know, I love to read. I I I have always read tons of books, but and that's my way into a lot of stories. But for other people, it's watching something or enacting something or there's so many ways to get into it. I think, I mean, I think teachers try to do this, right? To, to try to, to help kids come at it from different angles, um, to bring in interdisciplinary, to, to um, not just colorblind, but even gender blind casting, I think for, for kids is important because it helps them understand that, that there are no barriers necessarily. I mean, I, I, f I feel very lucky that it never occurred to me that I couldn't do this or that because I was a girl, because I have a strange mix of heritage. But I know for a lot of people it did make that difference, and I know that um, seeing role models, I mean, people, kids like send me tweets all the time, and they're like, I can't believe you're... A, you were a, an engineer and now you're a lawyer and it never occurred to me that I could do those things and so you know maybe I will and it's it's wonderful I think representation matters you've uh, inspired me we're doing at the Constitution Center this great series of educational videos uh, that justices uh, Neil Gorsuch and Elena Kagan have agreed to participate in and what you've just and the college board is going to push these out to all three to five million AP students it's an amazing opportunity to teach these AP kids about the First Amendment, but I think you've inspired me that we need to have some colorblind casting, at least as a narrator for these videos, instead of just the justices and me, another old white guy, we need to have kids of color who the students can relate to and really bring it back to their own lives. That's absolutely central, so thank you for that. All right, Erwin, we have uh, some more opportunities to just distill the essence of Hamilton's constitutional legacy. He's an unlikely hero for progressives uh, in many ways, uh, a, a representative of uh, uh, Federalist money power. Jefferson attacked him as being a representative of the oligarchy. So what are the less uh, progressive or less savory parts of Hamilton's constitutional legacy that you want Americans to know about, and how is he both relevant and not relevant to, well, to our debates today in that sense? Alexander Hamilton was very much an elitist. He had a great distrust of the people. An example of that is he was one of the champions of creating the Electoral College. He specifically said, we can't have the people choosing the president of the United States. Now, the Electoral College was then picked up and championed by those in the South because it was a way of helping slave states, that if the vote was done based on population, since slaves couldn't vote, southern slave states would be disadvantaged in choosing the president. But the Electoral College gives southern states a benefit, because the Constitution says that slaves would count as three-fifths of a person in determining representation of the House, representation, House of Representatives. The Electoral College allocates electors to each state by combining their senators and their number of representatives. So southern states would get the benefit of their slaves in their representation in choosing the president, something they wouldn't have with a popular vote. There's nothing like the Electoral College in any other country in the world that thinks of itself as a democracy. There's no other country in the world that thinks of itself as a democracy where the candidate who loses the popular vote can become president of the United States. And yet, 
twice in just the last 16 years, two of the last three presidents. Five times in American history, we've had a president who lost the popular vote, nonetheless get to assume the office. And I think Alexander Hamilton deserves a lot of blame for that. <laughs> Thank you for that, uh, for putting that uh, on Hamilton's shoulders. And of course, Hamilton's original vision was even more elitist. He wanted a president for life. And we have a sense of the evolution of the Electoral College. So downstairs, if you haven't seen it, it's the most amazing opportunity. It's the very rarest first draft of the Constitution. And it's written not by Madison or Hamilton, but by James Wilson, an unappreciated founder. And we see in the evolution of those drafts, Wilson wanted popular election of the president by the people. Hamilton initially wants a president for life. Madison wants election by the legislature. The compromise is this Frankenstein Electoral College that Irwin has described. And uh, it's made a lot of, at least half of the country is not so happy with it today. Josh, we just did a podcast on this. Is there an argument in favor of the Electoral College today? If you had to make it you know, in the debater mode, what would it be? And then since I know uh, at least some of the country is quite unhappy with it, um, and yet a constitutional amendment seems unlikely, what are the prospects for reforming our presidential election system? So the arguments in favor of the Electoral College, if I had to make them, are that um, you re it requires a president or someone to win the presidency with widespread support from different parts of the country. You have to win in different regions, cities and, and you know, more urban states and rural states. Um, you have to potentially travel to more places to gain support um, widespread. Um, there's also an argument that, you know, the people are, you know, the, the campaign strategy would be different if we were electing it based on a popular vote. Uh, and so it does allow some of these states to have their say and to feel like they're represented. Um, you're right that a constitutional amendment would be very difficult, uh, but there is a plan currently called the National Popular Vote Plan to sort of do a workaround of the Constitution. Um, and essentially, because the Constitution says that states can direct how to appoint their electors however they want, and in fact, at the founding, some state legislatures just decided who uh, should get their electoral college votes. Um, the current plan in some states is essentially for the legislature to pass a law that says, regardless of how our state votes, whoever wins the national popular vote receives our electoral college vote. So we're here in Pennsylvania. Uh, even if the Republican candidate, say, won Pennsylvania's electoral college votes, if the Democratic candidate won the popular vote nationwide, Pennsylvania would give its electoral college votes to that candidate. Um, that plan is passed, and I think the latest is 12 or 13 states have actually enacted laws that say this is how we're going to allocate our electoral college votes. Um, uh, but it doesn't go into effect in a, until enough states have passed it to equal 270. So essentially, it's on the books in a handful of states, but won't be implemented until enough states have, uh, have, have passed the law. Now, there are some questions about whether it's constitutional, uh, because it is a clear workaround of the Constitution. But that is the current uh, hope for some people who are trying to move to a popular vote plan without actually amending the Constitution. And what are the odds that that popular vote plan might actually pass? If a Republican candidate were to win the popular vote but not the Electoral College, then I think the odds would go much higher. Currently, the states that have adopted the plan are all Democratic states, and we can understand why. In both 2000 and 2016, it was a Republican candidate who lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College. 
but given how divided the swing states are, that's not an impossible possibility. No, and it looked like it might happen in 2012, in fact. It looked like it was possible that Mitt Romney would win the popular vote, but Barack Obama would win the Electoral College. It didn't, that didn't end up happening. Obama won the popular vote as well. Um, but no, it's, it's certainly plausible that that could occur. Great. Um, thank you. It's my uh, papers fly away. Judge Jackson, uh, well, first of all, we're waiting for the next Hamilton citation, in your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you about, I think, uh, the relevance of Hamilton and the jurisprudence of original understanding, both uh, in, in your work and to courts more generally. Obviously, on the Supreme Court, there's a big debate among liberals and conservatives about whether or not to consult the original understanding of the framers. And one of the greatest uh, evidence of original understanding is the Federalist Papers written by Hamilton. And I just was preparing for this panel. I just opened this book on a random page and found a letter from George Washington praising Hamilton for writing the Federalist Papers and calling them the best and most perfect defense of the Constitution that, that he had read. Um, but li liberals and progressives also cite the Federalist Papers just in a different way. They want to apply it to current times. Is this debate live on the district court where you are? And how would you like our audience to know about how judges of different perspectives view the relevance of the Federalist Papers and as they write their opinions? Well, it's an excellent question. The debate is actually not really live at my level. Um, I have rare occasion to consult original texts in this way because uh, for the most part, uh, it's my colleagues at the Court of Appeals level um, who deal with things like what should the law be, um, you know, what are the original, what's the original understanding um, in most of the cases that come before me, I'm at the trial level, which is the first uh, level in the federal system. I am constrained by what the D.C. Circuit says uh, pertaining to the Federalist Papers. So it doesn't really come up that often in my uh, level of, of the court. So I can't really speak to that question. But Erwin would be able to. <laughs> no, it's a... Uh, uh, uh... Um, well then, uh, when, uh, does Hamilton inspire your work in any other ways? I know you don't, you don't, yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is just, just on a personal level, um, you know, I was, I was moved to some extent by the parts of the play that talked about his uh, being a prolific writer um, because it actually is very much, uh, it, it echoes and resonates in a lot of what we do in the judiciary, that unlike the other branches of government, the judicial officers actually write our opinions. You know, you don't really know um, in the legislative branch, for example, what everybody's opinion is because they don't publish them in the way that we do. And so um, some judges are more prolific than others. I think I fall a little closer to the, the you know, writing a lot <laughs> side. Um, and so that kind of res resonates with me. I think also the, the theme in the musical uh, having to do with Burr being so neutral that, uh, you know, the parts in the play where um, Burr says, you know, never let them know what you're for or what you're against, or I think I got the line mixed up, but um, to, to a certain degree, he um, often fluctuates and stands on both sides of, of issues. And in the judiciary, neutrality is a very central concept that you know judges have to be um, neutral that we don't uh, you know take stands necessarily we have to listen to both sides and come 
to a conclusion. And so it's a positive um, in, the, in the judiciary to be able to you know, withhold your opinions and, and not let people know what you really think. Um, and so it's interesting to me in, in Hamilton that that's obviously on the legislative side, it's, it's a negative in terms of Burr's personality, but it's something that is valued. And there's that part in the play where um, they're talking uh, right after the, the revolution and they're working as lawyers and Hamilton says he thinks that Burr is a better lawyer. Um, and I wonder whether that's because Burr can argue both sides of the issue. He can you know, represent people no matter what his personal views are. And that's something in our system that is valued. Those are two wonderful takeaways from the musical, uh, being inspired to write more. And we saw Hamilton's writing desk downstairs, which is really inspiring to see this, how small it is and how much he wrote on it, on steamships and so forth. And that idea of Burr as neutral. So suddenly we have a new motto for the judiciary, uh, say less and smile more, <laughs> which would be very neutral. Vanessa, I guess I'll ask the same question when Judge Jackson talks about what, you know, how she was inspired by the musical. What inspires you about Hamilton? Um, probably not the same thing that inspires everyone else. Um, I guess what's most inspiring about it is that, um, I don't know that I've ever put this into words before. Um, that Lynn is maybe a little like Hamilton in that he'll write anywhere. He draws inspiration from all sorts of places and he goes and gets what he wants. And I've always been a little jealous of him in that he knows, he always knew he wanted to do theater. He, I mean, be in the entertainment industry and he, you know, that, that idea of having, of putting in 10,000 hours before you're an expert in something. I mean, he started that when he was a kid. So he was well on his way, you know, in the early 20, in his early 20s, whereas I didn't consider becoming a lawyer until um, my science career sort of introduced patent law to me. And then I didn't end up going into patent law, but I, I do think that law is suited to me um, or that I'm suited to it, um, but this, his, his ability to, yeah, to just, to, to write and to go for what he wants, even without any structure, you know, he didn't, he never worked for a, a, a firm or a company where he had to go nine to five and write, write what he was doing. He had to do it all on his, on his own, of his own accord. Um, and that he created this thing while like walking our dog is, is great. It's, it's just speaks to how, to his, to, to his strengths. So I, if I'm inspired, it's, it's by Lynn more than the musical. And, and was Lynn inspired by Hamilton, the man? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm sure there. He's talked about how he, you know, read the book and and saw the musical jumping off the page and the the hip hop jumping off the page, um, and yeah, we were on vacation in Mexico and he was like, "This is a musical," and I was like, "Okay, great, go go write that. <laughs> you do you." Um, 
yeah, I mean, I think I, I think he probably sees a little bit of himself in parts of it, but but I, that's also you know he talks about being being a writer. You have to see yourself in what you're writing, and so you have to find a way into every character. It's not that he looks at the musical and says. I'm Hamilton and I'm only Hamilton, you know, like he sees some part of himself in Burr, he sees some part of himself in Eliza, he sees some part of himself in every character. And so to what we were talking about before, about how to inspire other people, it's, uh, and maybe I, I misspoke, it's not just about reading or enacting things, it's also about writing. I mean, there's so much fan fiction now and that you can read like online and it's, I mean, not just for Hamilton, for everything. It's people finding their way into or working out their problems using these characters for whatever the characters were, Star Trek or, or Hamilton. Um, I think you, you can find inspiration in anything. Certainly Lynn found Hamilton inspiring and, and a good story. And, and, and that's a great reminder to all citizens just to write, to, to, to pick a figure to be inspired by and then to, to write about what they mean to them. Um, you know, I, I, well, we have great questions from the audience, so I think I better ask them. Uh, but I, 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 you're a you know, nation's preeminent constitutional law scholar. Was there something about the musical that changed the way you teach the Constitution? I don't use multimedia much in my class. I've never <laughs> used PowerPoint, but I always play part of Hamilton to my students, especially the cabinet debate where they discuss the creation of the National Bank. It's also to go back to what we were just talking about, of what's so inspiring about Hamilton as a figure. And I talk about it much more in class as a result of the play. Here's somebody who grew up in what we today think of as very hard, disadvantaged circumstances. His parents weren't married, and as a result, the Church of England wouldn't educate him. He was actually educated in a Jewish school because the Anglican school wouldn't take him. By virtue of his hard work and his ability, he achieved an enormous amount, I mean, more even than the play can communicate in terms of all of the things that he did. And in that sense, it's an enormously inspiring story. It's one that all of us should be able to relate to in terms of whatever our circumstances, through hard work, we can achieve so much. And I try to communicate that to the students by using Hamilton as an example. Beautiful. Uh, Josh, I have to ask the same question. What, what inspired you? Yeah, so, well, a, a couple things. That, uh, first, I want to answer the same question that Erwin did about my teaching. I teach a class called Civil Procedure, which is essentially the rules that lawyers have to follow in civil court when they have disputes between each other, between each other that, that people have uh, non-criminal disputes. And I actually start the class now by playing the song 10 Dual Commandments because I tell my students, I'm going to teach you uncivil procedure and how people used to resolve disputes before we teach learn civil procedure and how uh, we resolve disputes today. Um, but in terms of what inspired me about the musical is that it's, what's so amazing is that we're still having these same fights whether it's about the urban-rural distinction and federalism and states' rights um, and the electoral college and even things that are being said about different candidates. I, I, um, in preparing for this, I, I pulled some quotes that Hamilton wrote about Byrne. It, it just really amazed me. Um, I'm going to make sure I don't misquote it here. Um, Hamilton said of Burr during that, that 1800 election dispute, uh, his public principles have no other spring or aim than his own aggrandizement. 
If he can, he will certainly disturb our institutions to, to secure to himself permanent power and with it wealth. The appointment of Burr as president would disgrace our country abroad. No agreement with him could be relied upon. If you think about 2016, Vanessa and I were talking about this earlier today, people on either side would, was saying that about Trump and about Clinton. And so it's really amazing. I think the musical speaks to so many people in some ways because it's about the same disputes that we're having today. If, if that were 140 characters, it'd be a tweet. It, <laughs> it certainly would. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, here are some questions from our great uh, audience. Uh, oh, they're, they're so good. Let me put a couple on the table for so that you can... Uh, uh, choose among them. So the first round is, who is your favorite founder and why? Uh, what's your favorite lesson from Hamilton, the man, or the musical? And which founding father should the next musical be about? <laughs> so let's start with those three questions. And uh, Judge Jackson, you can pick any of those you like. Who's your favorite oh founder? What's your What's your favorite lesson? Or who should the next musical be about? Well, I am I am not a... a, a historian, so I'm going to skip the ones about favorite um, founder and probably say that my favorite lesson um, is, is basically the one that, that Erwin pointed out, which is you have someone who is an outsider, who is not an aristocrat, who made an enormous difference um, in terms of the future of our country and the founding of our country. Um, and it, it, it is so much an American story in the sense that um, this is the land of opportunity. People come here in order to change their circumstances and better themselves and make a difference in society. And here was a person who embodied that, I think. Um, and so that, that, and it's very strong throughout the, the musical how hard he worked uh, in order to do that as well. And so his outsider status and the work ethic, I think, is the, is the biggest lesson that I take away. Wonderful. Vanessa, same, same three, and you can choose any one favorite founder, favorite lesson from the musical, or who the next uh, musical should be about. Uh, I guess my favorite has to be Hamilton. I think I'm required by marital vow to say that. <laughs> by the Constitution. <laughs> um, the third question, I am also required by marital vow to never answer. <laughs> and the second, um, obviously, that's a, a great pull from the musical. Um, I would say the next one is um, the idea that um, history is told by the winner. Um, and so that's another reason for, um, for, for getting multiple views on events and um, trying to put your shoes in, in, in the, trying to put yourself in the shoes of people who you may not agree with um, so that you can see, you know, how somebody else sees the story. And if the victor is the only one telling history, then there's only one point of view. And, and, and that's, it's not even just the past, it's the present, right? If you're, surrounded by people who think like you, then that's the only viewpoint you're ever going to see. And you're going to think, well, I think this is, this dress is blue and black. What was it? And then, and, but you think it's silver. You must be out of your mind. You can't even be a real human. You must be 
an evil, crazy alien, right? But actually, if you talk to that person and could put yourself in their shoes, maybe you can see why they think it's a different color. It's, it's a really p powerful account of the necessity of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understood that marital vows prevent you from saying what Lynn's next musical is. Could, do you, could anyone else bottle the magic and take another founder and write another international sensation about a founding father or was that just a once in a lifetime uh, experience? Sure, get, get to writing people. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's the charge of, of, uh, of all of us, absolutely. Erwin, uh, favorite founder, favorite lessoner? Well, I'm just gonna ask you straight out, who do you think the next musical should be about? I was gonna answer the second question of the best lesson is don't participate in a duel. <laughs> <laughs> in just terms of that question, the third, the reason I wasn't gonna answer is, I think the things I most admire are the things that I know I could never possibly do. The genius of the play Hamilton is so beyond my comprehension. I read Rodden Chernow's book, I thought it was a wonderful book, but the idea that somebody could turn it into a musical, a musical with brilliant lyrics, is just beyond my comprehension. So I have to answer your first question. Um, and that's why even before I came here, or even before I saw the play, I would have said Alexander Hamilton. Because I don't think our country could have lasted without following his vision. We have to have a strong national government to deal with national security issues, economic problems, social issues. The Hamilton vision had to be there. We have to enforce the Constitution. It's meaningless if it's just words on parchment, and it's judicial review that provides the enforcement. Think of Brown versus Board of Education. How long would it have taken for Southern states to end segregation if it wasn't for judicial review and the power that Hamilton argued for in Federalist 78? When I go around the country and people say we, we need another musical about a founder, the, the, the next vote is generally Madison. Could you imagine a, a best-selling musical about Madison? Or is he not musical worthy? I couldn't imagine a best-selling musical about Hamilton <laughs> until it occurred. Um, you know, maybe there could be one about George Washington. Um, so it just takes a genius far beyond my comprehension to be able to create such a thing. And that's what Hamilton does. James Wilson, another possibility. <laughs> uh, favorite founder, favorite lesson, who should the next musical be? Or even better, if you could give us the, a song from the next musical, that would be <laughs> really useful. So um, I went to George Washington University, so I think um, my tuition dollars obligated me to say GW. Excellent, um, I'll second that. So yeah, as, uh, as a favorite. Actually, I'm gonna take the word founder um, very loosely and argue for a Supreme Court justice from about uh, 60, 70 years ago, Justice Brennan. As a voting rights scholar, to me, the right to vote is the most foundational, important right in our democracy, that's, and it's not written in the US Constitution. The Constitution says nowhere that individuals have the right to vote. It was Justice Brennan in a series of cases that recognized the right to vote within the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and so I think that is such an important foundational point of our constitutional democracy that I would argue that should be elevated in importance. Um, so if you want the next song, the, the next song for the next musical, it's, it's called The Right to Vote. Um, wow. And uh, I have to think up some sna snappy rhyme 
uh, <laughs> for it. Or, or for the First Amendment, you know, free speech should be robust, complete, and wide open. You can just yeah. run with it from there, absolutely. Um, it's well, no joke, the right to vet doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a genius <laughs> to write this. Can I answer one, one part of this? Um, the most important lesson I just want to make sure I mention. The line, you have no control of who lives, who dies, who tells your story, I think is so poignant. And it reminds all of us that you can go out and do all these things and try to make a difference in the world. And you have to have faith that what you're doing can have that difference. You know, one of my favorite quotes is, is from Jackie Robinson, where he said, a life is not important except the impact it has on other lives. And I think of those lines in very similar ways. And I think it's a really powerful message that comes out of the musical. Beautiful. Well, uh, the Constitution Center panels always have to end on time, and many of you need to uh, get uh, transportation back. So for inspiring Americans of all backgrounds and ages to learn about the Constitution, please thank the musical and our panelists for spreading so much constitutional light. Thank you very much. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Tanea Topper and Jackie McDermott. If you'd like to learn more about Hamilton, please visit the National Constitution Center's exhibit, Hamilton, The Constitutional Clashes That Shaped a Nation, which highlights the competing ideas of Alexander Hamilton and his legendary rivals. And if you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And please check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.